0: My guest this week has been there and done that. He joined Williams as an engineer when the team had a staff of just 23 people, and over the following four decades, he worked with some of the greatest teams, the quickest drivers, and on some of the fastest cars the sport has ever seen. Changing the whole car was never sensible, actually. The most important thing over
1: the winter was to make sure what you did change was the thing that was going to make it quicker, not just something that you fancied changing. The idea of never spending a penny on something that doesn't
0: matter is still strong in me. Although Frank Durney retired from Formula One more than 10 years ago, his influence lives on. He was a man who loved finding solutions, who could spot the things that the data didn't show. And he knew how to get the best out of racing drivers. I didn't think any
1: driver was that much quicker than one of the others, frankly. I knew that one driver was better than the other in the team because you saw consistently one of them was quicker. But I thought that pretty well any driver would be able to win in the fastest car. And that turned out not to be true. And it was
0: Pross that proved it to me. Welcome everyone to F1 Beyond the Grid. My name's Tom Clarkson and I'm delighted to have another technical genius on the show this week. Frank Durney was a pioneer. In his time, he introduced some of Formula One's biggest technological advances while also being a brilliant race engineer trackside. He loved F1, especially in the years when there was more technological freedom than there is today, and he worked with many of the sport's biggest names. He was definitely a man whom every driver wanted working on their side of the garage. Frank remembers his career like it was yesterday, so prepare yourselves for lots of fascinating insights. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Frank, thank you for having me to your house uh, in Wantage in the UK. It's been a while since I last saw you. How are you? I'm really well. I'm, I'm very well, yeah. Still living in the same place I've
1: lived for 40 years.
0: Well, now there's an interesting point because it's almost 40 years that you spent in Formula One. And I wanted to ask you first of all, which era in those nearly 40 years was the most interesting for you?
1: As the rules got tighter, the cars got less interesting. So there were probably two periods that I really enjoyed. One was when we were doing ground effect, but with sliding skirts, because then you could let the car move around quite a lot. And as soon as we got the flexi skirts, they were no longer as interesting. And the other was the period where you could do things like a six-wheel
0: car or active suspension, all those things, which were really interesting. So for those two things you've highlighted, so that that ground effect era, we're talking late Late 70s. Late
1: 70s, yeah, you know, up to
0: 82. 81, we had
1: flexi skirts, which was probably better. I mean, sliding skirts are not really part of any sort of a car you can think of are they but they did allow a car with a lot of downforce from the underneath to have relatively large suspension travel so they were quite nice to set up and to drive whereas as soon as we had flexi skirts you had to keep them as near the ground as you possibly could to get the so downforce didn't leak away and therefore you were in the skateboarding and it was a skateboarding then for the next god knows how long
0: well, it's how funny that we're talking about that era straight away because, of course, 2022, we've got the new rules in Formula One and people yes. are saying it's the biggest rule change since ground effect was banned at the yes, end of 82. Indeed,
1: yeah. it, it will be. And it's it's going to be very interesting. I mean, I obviously haven't been involved in the concept or design of those cars. The side pods do look Quite similar to the you know the strakes and things like that, and looks very similar to the kart rules. Kart as in Indycar. Yeah, the Championship auto racing teams, I think they called themselves, and they were, you know, they were ground effect, and it was a it was a nice era. You had Lola, Reynard, Swift, and um, Penske building cars to the rules, and it was it wasn't Formula One because the money wasn't there, but it was quite good stuff until it went one make and. I'm, I hate one-make formulas.
0: And then you said that you enjoyed the era that allowed, gave you the freedom to do things like active suspension. So really anything up until what, the mid-90s, is that when it started yeah, to tighten of, up? Yeah, a
1: bit? it's it's The thing is that people make the mistake of thinking that the rules determine how expensive the cars are. And what determines how expensive the cars are is the success of the marketing department in, in, in raising cash because everyone spends all their money. It doesn't matter whether you're buying shoes or building formula 1 cars you've got a budget you spend it so the technical regulations they influence what you spend it on but not how much you spend and therefore it was it was nicer when you had more things you were allowed to spend your money on now you're spending a hours in the wind tunnel looking at a little vein that may be a bit more curved or a bit less curved or slant outwards a bit or have a sharp edge or a radius edge and it makes a difference which is almost impossible to measure whereas back then you'd be saying hmm i wonder if we can get away with six wheels rather than four you know they were big things i I mean, I I remember coming back from a week's wind tile test with 18% more downforce. Well, 18, 1.8? One 1.8, eight, one eight, yeah. And then, you know, if you got 1.8
0: now, you would it would be like Christmas. While we're just talking big headline things during your career, we've just discussed the era that you thought was the most interesting. What was the best car you ever worked on?
1: I think the FW11B was probably overall the best because it was... It, well, it won.
0: <laughs> that was the 87
1: yeah, Williams the Honda. car, Yeah. And in fact, had your
0: active suspension it on did, it. As well, yeah. It did, yeah. That
1: sort of. I mean, the other car was the 11, the FW11. When I joined Williams, Patrick had laid the car out and schemed up the detail of almost all of it. So I got involved in detail doing. The only thing he gave me to do was the outer panels and the skirts, which hadn't he hadn't even thought about how to do those yet. And so that was my bit of the car. I then picked up the the aero program. All the mods after that came from me really. But it was a Patrick car. I mean, he'd modified the structure massively in the meantime because I think it obviously started off the chassis was very like a Lotus 72 and Ross was the technician in R&D. He, a torsion test, and Patrick was horrified by by the torsion performance. So Patrick was straight in there, improving the chassis and what have you. And I was in there in the wind tunnel, sorting out what did and didn't work and what worked better, and cooling systems and all sorts. So that and that car really lasted from. If I look at the gearbox and rear suspension, I actually did the detail on that from Patrick's scheme in nineteen seventy nine, in early seventy nine. And it was still on the car in nineteen eighty three.
0: That's extraordinary. Yeah.
1: Cause it didn't wasn't one of the bits of the car that was going to make it quicker. It was reliable. It was light enough. So we just kept it. Because there weren't many of us, you know. You the, the changing the whole car was never sensible actually, but the most important thing over the winter was to make sure what you did change was the thing that was going to make it quicker. Not just
0: something that you fancy changing, you know. You joined Williams in 1978 and you've already just mentioned two other big names in the history of Formula One, Ross Braun and Patrick Head. Yeah. How many people were at the team when you joined? 23, <sighs> including Frank and his secretary. And did ever think grow incredibly quickly after that? I don't know that it did really I mean we we didn't know, Frank and Patrick were very,
1: Frank in particular wouldn't spend any money on anything that didn't make the car go quicker. For example the first thing he told me, you can forget having a company car I'm not a garage owner um, he did pay me enough to have my own car so the, the idea, and that sort of thing and he, I think he'd said the same to Patrick because on one occasion I think Patrick had a shunt coming to work and Frank was obviously a bit concerned and said, you know, when, when you get here, he said, well, I can't come Frank, I've, I've written off my car. And so Frank drove all the way to Patrick's house, gave him his car and rang Ginny to fetch him home. I.e. Patrick got a company car and it was, it was the car Frank had been driving to work. So, it, you know, the, we had no motorhome We didn't have a truck even, I think, in 79. We used to get food from the kiosk. Or the circuit cafe. Yeah, exactly. And we had to have the flyaway containers to go to the flyaway. So all the spares had got a box and all that stuff. We used to rent a flatbed truck. So there we were spending absolutely nothing on a motorhome, absolutely nothing on a truck, but we had the fastest car. And we were quicker by a lot and yet, other people had got fancy trucks with a parquet floor and all the rest of the stuff, and we were beating them. Mm. And it was a lesson for me then that I've always been quite tight anyway, just ask my family. But the idea of never spending a penny on something that doesn't matter is still strong in me. And yet, you look at Formula One now, and I would think 80% of the budget's going on something that
0: doesn't really make the car go any faster. Were you surprised by how quick success came back then for Williams Grand Prix Engineering? Yeah. Because we're talking, let's face it, year two effectively, aren't we? Yeah, really, yeah. And you win your first race at Silverstone in 79 with with Clay Regazzoni. Yeah. Can you remember the Monday after that race?
1: Uh, To be honest, it was just, a well, that's what we went for. That's good, lads. Let's keep it up. That was another frank thing. You always were trying to be better. I mean, he was pleased, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but it was the, right, that's the first, you know, we're on our way now, Now let's capitalise on what we're doing and make sure we do more of the good stuff. Where were the main gains back then? Aero. The chassis, obviously, we, Patrick made it stiffer, there were little, quite big mods early on to be honest, but little mods came along, but almost all of it's aero. In the end, uh, what you need to do to get more grip is to keep the tyre temperature at the optimum temperature for friction coefficient for as much of the grip-limited time as possible and press as hard downwards on the tyres as you can. So that's downforce and tyre temperature. And if those are the two things that are first order. But if you get those two things good, you've got a fast car. So anything that gives you more downforce and less drag and anything that keeps the car
0: temp tyre temperatures good, those are what you're looking at doing. And you and Patrick were on the same page, though. Yeah. And he has that Sergeant Major quality about him. How open to new ideas was he? The thing is, Patrick and I were friends,
1: and we're not far off in age. So a lot of people are scared of Patrick. Were you? I'm not scared of him, no. We're, we're mates. He was, I was one of the people who could go in there and throw sh- I shouldn't say in, we could have an open discussion, should we say. And I don't think many people in the team, probably including Frank, (laughs) felt free to have an open discussion with Patrick. The only time I suggested something that I thought might work, that he ever, I wouldn't say he was ever anti it. it. It was, if he didn't think it was worth the money, it might cost. Cad was one of them. I was pretty sure that Cad would be a good thing and Patrick didn't think it was worth the money. And in the end, Frank agreed that I could have Cad in return for a sticker on the car, i.e. he had nothing in the budget for it. Patrick had nothing in the budget for it. If I wanted it, if I could raise enough money to have it, then I could have
0: it. Was
1: that the one instance, really, where you and Patrick were... No, no, the other was the active suspension. It became obvious once we had a flat bottom that the car was basically horrifically unstable. And it was pretty obvious to me that if we could control the ride height rather than just let the forces control it, it would be a gain. And Patrick just thought that was going to be horrendously too expensive and he couldn't see any way that we could find the resource to do it. But then a chap came who'd worked for AP... On a project to make ambulances ride better and be more stable, and a few ideas on how that worked, and Patrick thought, "Well, we'll we'll run with that then." So he then said, "Yeah, go go for it." And Nelson drove it for the first time, and said, "When well, no, I drove it for the first time, because everyone was frightened it was going to be dangerous." You, I, Frank Doney drove I, it. I was the first person to drive the Williams active where? suspension Tell me, car. Where was that? Um, Abingdon Airfield, up and down the straight in the rain on slicks. At that time, uh, Nigel was
0: refusing to drive it. But Frank, you're having to do this project on the side whilst doing the aero and race engineering. engineering Who were you race engineering in 86? In 86, Nelson, yeah. You said Nigel didn't. Like the active car, Nelson did all of the testing, is that right? Yeah, the thing, Nigel had some really scary experiences testing
1: the Lotus active suspension, and psychologically for him, active suspension was dangerous and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Literally that, he he told me, I'm not going to drive it. So even on one occasion, when Nigel was living, I think, in the Isle of Man and Nelson was visiting his mum in Brazil, we had to test at Silverstone, Nigel wouldn't do it. Nelson flew back from Brazil to do the test. So up to the point at which it won in Monza in 87, Nigel had never driven it. And then he said, where's mine? Of course, because Nigel's a racing driver and he's competitive and he saw it won and he wanted one.
0: And so that win in Italy convinced Nigel that he He had had to have one. He had to
1: And it was a problem because... We'd embedded the hydraulic pipes into the chassis so that they didn't encroach on the cockpit area. So we had to do an absolute massive,
0: massive project to make another chassis so Nigel could have one. Because a lot has said, uh, I know you weren't at Williams in 92, but when Nigel won the World Championship that year, everybody, maybe it's an old wives' tale, but a lot of people said, oh, that active car really suited his style. I think more grip suits every driver's style. (laughs) Frank, now was that Monza race in 87, the first win for your active car, was that the most important win of your career? Most satisfying win, given everything that you've mm. just described about getting the active well, system Well, I working. was a lucky guy. You know, we had a few wins that I
1: enjoyed. I think probably my favourite, favourite, favourite win was 79 Montreal with... Jones. Jones, yeah. Because that was one of the races I did. Patrick wasn't there. And of course, there's hard you'd you laugh the level of how many people there were and all the rest of the stuff. I think there would be eight or nine of us at the race. And we'd done all the practice and all the rest of the stuff. And back then, there was a warm-up on Sunday morning. And that's when you did your fuel consumption check and your brake wear check and everything. We hadn't run the car full of fuel until then. So we did the full tanks, we did the warm-up, and I went. Back then, the engineers had to measure the brake pads and brake wear and stuff. There weren't mechanics doing it. So or you, you might get them to do it if you were busy on something else. But anyway, we looked at the fuel consumption, the brake wear, and I did my calculations. I thought I must have done that wrong. Uh, I definitely got that wrong. We couldn't finish the race on either. We would wear the brakes out and run out of fuel before the end of the race. And of course, the ability to have done all the homework that they can trivially easily do now just wasn't there. Anyway, you were still allowed to top the car up on the grid. So we did that. We stuck a fuel thing on it and just left fuel in the. Van and absolutely, left it it. absolutely <laughs> as full as it could possibly go. I just thought on the brakes, it's going to be knackered when it. it's the wear is going to be high when it's heavy. So I just said to Jonesy, look, I'm worried about whether you'll be able to finish on fuel consumption and stuff. So I'm going to have to guess what the fuel and everything's like. But if you can take it relatively gently, don't let feel nerve get away from you, but don't race him hard until I give you the signal. And the only signal we had that was not, you know, time and stuff was, or the arrow to come in was the pump-off sign, which is the sign you gave to remind the driver to switch the mechanical fuel pump-off on the DFE. So I said... I'm going to have a think about it while you're going. And at some stage, I'll give you the pump-off sign. Do not turn the pump off. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it'll be off by then. Okay. Um, you give him that at the end of the first lap. So I'll give you it again. And after that, it's up to you then. You can drive it however you like. So we did that. He won. At the end of the race, it was dry. The brakes were completely worn out. The whole thing. It was the one of those races where a bit like Colin Chapman used to say the car should pass go over the finishing line then fall apart that's the nearest i ever got and that was, that massively, was only like a second behind, wasn't it uh, yeah the well flag, the yeah. thing is yeah.
0: the idea was to win at the slowest speed possible that montreal race in 79 raises an interesting question about jones in that was he more malleable and and technical as a driver than perhaps people give him credit and that race he proves just, that. He's just
1: a great racing driver. He he understood that the best thing to do is to win the race at the slowest speed possible. That was a bit of a Nelson thing as well. It was a bit of an era thing. The thing with Jonesy is he was one of the best drivers I ever worked with, simply because
0: he knew where he was losing time. Okay, yeah. you said Jonesy was one of the best you worked with. Yeah. Come on then. Well, Frank Durney, who was the best driver you worked well, with? Well, it's impossible to say, isn't it? Because it's different different eras and
1: um it was interesting working with michael michael schumacher i don't think he liked me very much i was much too old for him and the other drivers i worked with but he was much more into wanting to look at the data on the computer and i wasn't going to fill his mindful of the fact that the data on the computer didn't have the most important things on it like tire temperature and the stuff that i was really interested in it was interesting because he was very committed and very fit and very ruthless selfish and i worked two tests with prost and he was outstanding as well but obviously never worked at a race meeting with himself so So that was uh, when
0: he was testing the legier yeah what stood out about Alain prost well he was quick that was the
1: most amazing thing i mean he just got in the car now i know the psychology would be part of it because he's very mentally uh, Thierry Bootsman was a mate of Senna's, so he obviously wanted to destroy him, but I can't remember what it was. But he
0: was well over a second faster than Thierry. Which racetrack? Ricard and Estoril But you can't have been that surprised. At that time, it was in 1992, wasn't it? so Yeah, but I mean, he was a three the time is, world champion. I, I just thought, I, I didn't think any driver was that much quicker than one of the
1: others, frankly. He was. So much faster than Thierry that I didn't believe that anybody was that much faster than any of the others. I actually thought, and that probably taught me a lesson that it'd take me years to learn, that the drivers were actually much closer in talent and about, you know, I knew that one driver was better than the other in the team because you saw consistently one of them was quicker. But I thought that pretty well any driver would be able to win in the fastest car. And that turned out not to be true. And it was
0: Pross that proved it to me. Oh, it's fascinating talking <laughs> drivers, isn't it? On the topic of racing dynasties, you've worked with both Rosbergs, Keke, and Nico. I think Nakajima's as well, uh, Satoru and Kazuki sort of, as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sort of. Yeah. Well, let's talk Rosbergs. Yeah. Similarities between those two? Yeah, uh, chalk and cheese. We're, We're sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I sorry. did text Keke yesterday, and I said, "Oh, I'm I'm speaking to Frank tomorrow," and he said, "Oh, I do hope he's discreet." And I said, "Well, I hope he's not." <laughs> <laughs> Discreet, yeah. Well, Keki wouldn't be.
1: That was the funny thing. I mean, Keki was very outspoken. And then he went to McLaren and he'd obviously signed something in his contract with Ron because the Keki who drove for McLaren was not the Keki I knew. You know, Keki was not backwards in came forward with an opinion. Um, but he, he had such fantastic car control. But it, it was very it's very interesting. There are two driver styles that I've come across. One is where the driver comes flying into the corner at an amazing speed and gives it full throttle and sees if he can take it yet, and then comes back off it and goes bat back, 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 back through the corner, like Senna, and Keke was like that. And other drivers will sort of come in really smooth and not turn the steering wheel too much and get on the power gently and generally have a higher G force in the mid corner, but not as much going in or coming out, and that would be more PK and Prost. So, you know, those are th- four drivers I've mentioned who are all great and have two quite different driving styles. Yeah,
0: fascinating. And you say it KK is. and Nico are chalk and cheese.
1: I would say their approach was, yeah. The
0: approach was different, but what about the way they drove? Well, the
1: car? I could I mean the thing is when By the time Nika was driving for Williams, I was helping, you know, I wasn't looking at his data and running his car and all the rest of the stuff, so I wouldn't have as close a relationship with him. Plus, of course, for (laughs) for Nika, I was the old bloke who used to work with his dad, you know. And with the the Nakajimas, uh, Satoru hardly spoke any English, and so you didn't have a close relationship with him. You had a bit of a relationship with his translator. Um, I think his son is probably pretty good, to be honest, but...
0: I don't know. It's, it's difficult, isn't it, to say. While we're talking drivers, Nelson and Nigel, chalk and cheese as well. Was that relationship always destined to break down? Uh, they, they were not going to get on. They
1: were very different characters. It was very weird, to be honest, because when Nigel first drove for Williams, we got on incredibly well. And in fact, he used to stay here. If we were testing at Silverstone, he'd be here, he'd be rolling around on the carpet with my kids and, you know, normal family stuff. And for some reason, at some stage, I think he decided
0: that I must be trying to help Nelson to screw him. And it was the relationship changed. Was that when you started race engineering, Nelson? or were you? No, all the way I was racing all, way, well, all the way through.
1: Yeah, because I, I, yeah, well, even when he first came, I was race engineering Keke, not him. And I don't know. I mean, Nelson was very good at winding people up. But then Nigel, too, used to... I do remember on one occasion, there was something in the paper about how Nelson was doing something dreadful to Nigel and rubbish. I can't remember exactly what it was. And Steve Hallam, who'd been at Lotus, he came to see me. He says... Is it true that Nelson Santa, Santa, Santa? And I said, Well, no, actually. He said, No, he said, I didn't think so. He said, That's what Nigel was like. So I suspect that Nigel, if he had a teammate who was close to him in performance, was a bit edgy. But the thing is, I've always had the attitude, even when I was race engineering one of the cars, my job is to come first and second. And I don't care which one's first as long as the other one's second. How difficult was it to be impartial? Not at all. I'm a team person rather than a driver fan. And for me, the most important thing was for us as a team to come first and second.
0: Frank, we've talked about your best races. Adelaide 86, is that the biggest disappointment of your career? And for people listening to this who don't know what happened in Adelaide, Nigel had his blowout and then, of course, Nelson was brought into the pits So that he he wouldn't have the same fate, I suppose. That was the concern, obviously. Safety comes
1: first. (laughs) I know Nelson afterwards said, oh, well, I've never been second in the championship. I'm not sure whether that was a bit of bravado. But for me, the biggest disappointment of the year was Nelson knocking all four wheels off it in Detroit, I think, when going at a pace
0: where he should have won. Can you just talk us through the decision in Adelaide to pit Nelson? pit uh, what was looking like still a healthy car were you tempted to leave him out and say well he doesn't (sighs) use his tires as much as nigel mm. and we're going to risk it to be honest when you're on the pit wall you have to activate
1: decisions you made previously making last moment decisions on the pit wall is nearly always wrong so when you've got to you haven't really got time to discuss it and i'm seeing Nigel's tyre fail, thinking, should we bring Nelson in? And Patrick had been running Nigel, and he was team principal, of course, then as well. I went to Patrick and said, what do you think? And he had already decided we should stop him, apparently. You see, it's funny, isn't it? Because I felt guilty for years thinking that it was me that pulled Nelson in and stopped him
0: being world champion in 86. And Patrick said, no, no, that was my decision. How good was the radio, the pits-to-car radio back then? Did you have a conversation with Nelson or was it just a straight pit now and he came in? Yeah. Nelson could have said no, obviously. <laughs> it w- wouldn't have been the first time. How did he take finishing second in the championship? Well, did he give any grief He to didn't anybody? give me any grief, no. no. no and when you looked at the set of tyres after the race... What state were they they in?
1: Well, they were pretty worn. I mean, whether they would have failed or not, because, you know, Kecky had a tyre failure. That's what stopped him. It wasn't as if it was a one-off for Nigel. It was, I mean, in retrospect, we should probably have left him out. But if he'd have had a tyre failure and died, then that wouldn't have been a good decision, would it? So you really, like I say, you can't fix the past. Frank, what was your greatest strength as an engineer? I think I'm pretty good at zeroing in on you know, fault finding. I found out probably too late in life that I have Asperger's. And so there is, I've got a weird working brain. And it's quite good at what they used to call troubleshooting. You know, going through stuff and finding out actually what the problem is. And I think that's my greatest
0: strength. Now, as a man who did two stints at Williams, there were, of course, other jobs along the way. Um, yeah. Why leave Williams after 10 years? Well,
1: Nelson was very keen that I should come to Lotus. And he said, I'm going to phone you up at 8 o'clock every morning until you agree to come. And he did. <laughs> this is at the end of 87. Yeah. Well, it was the end of 88, actually. it was. He went to Lotus and decided that the car wasn't very good and that they needed to change the way they made the car. So he asked me to go and join there. And they offered me a lot of money. And the weird thing was that it got to the stage where I thought that with the active suspension and the aero and stuff, you actually needed a team of people to do it, not just me. And if there was going to be a team of people to do it, you wouldn't need me anymore because Patrick could manage that team. Why would I be needed? So I sort of thought I didn't really have the ability to do three jobs at once at Williams anymore because that's what I was doing really. One of the HR people mentioned it to me a couple of years ago. He said, oh, I looked at the organogram and we were looking at Aero and we were looking at this and we were looking at that and we discovered it was only you. (laughs) You did all of it. Um, But you loved it. I did. I mean, I was so lucky. Can you imagine? I was so lucky to be paid for my whole career to do exactly what I liked. Did you feel let down by Nelson that he left Lotus? No. I mean, I, I thought we'd got great drivers that we you know that we, if we made a good car the 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 Lamborghini engine car was not not a good car it was uh, we hadn't made any aero gains since I started
0: because the wind tunnel that we had a contract with often didn't work. How did Martin Donnelly's accident at hereth in 1990 how did that affect you personally? Oh, I was horrified
1: I mean you feel so responsible don't you if you're that's the one thing that, as a designer of a racing car, you're most scared of is, is, is hurting your driver. And he was badly injured. So, yes, but if you, you analyse it, and again, this is going to sound a bit like you're trying to defend yourself, there have only been two accidents I've seen where the driver has hit the barrier almost at 90 degrees. Martins is one, and Gonzalo Rodriguez in Laguna Seca is another.
0: Just going through it in chronological order. You yeah. got the phone call from Ross, is that right? Is yeah, that yeah, right. To go yeah. to Benetton. Yeah. Schumacher. Yeah. Everything that came after yeah. that. Yeah, I think
1: um, Ross is very good at seeing what needs fixing. And he saw a place at Benetton that needed fixing. And I think he, he wanted... One of his mates as well, because he was new there. He'd come from the Jaguar sports car project, and there were a quite a lot of people at Benetton who were not over enamoured of having Ross in that
0: role. And, and Schumacher, you, you've touched on him already, saying yep. how fit he was and the, the detail that he went into. Yep. Did you predict then that he was world championship material? Yeah, he was
1: obviously capable yeah. of being world champion. Yeah,
0: yeah, seven times.
1: Who thought anyone would ever be seven-time champion then? Never mind Yeah, two people. Yeah, It was sort of unthinkable. I never thought it would ever happen again.
0: And what about Brundle? Is he someone who deserves maybe more credit than he gets? Yeah, I'm, I'm so- actually a big
1: fan of Martins. Yeah. I think he's a terrific driver. I think he was one of the greats, actually, who didn't possibly show in Formula One how great he was. He did in sports cars. But I think Martin's one of the... I really do think he's a great driver. Way better than the image from Formula 1. And he stacked up well against Michael, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, he stacks up well against everybody. I mean, he nearly beat
0: Senna in Formula, Formula 3, didn't he? Oh, he and Senna were like that in Formula 3. He's a great driver. I mean, I, I still think of you as a, a Williams man. And, and when you think of Frank and Patrick, and then you go to Benetton, and you have Flavio Briatore as, as mm. the money man versus Frank a bit of a culture shock definitely i mean the thing
1: with flav was he really had no interest in formula 1 at all he was interested in a, it as a business how to make money out of it i'll give you a little story he he wanted to get a good image so he could when he went into a uh, to a negotiation for sponsorship he was famous you know he he was he spent all his time building his image You'd sometimes see him on the radio, on the pit wall, for example. He never said anything on the radio. It was just that there was a TV camera on him and he saw it and so he thought he'd give it
0: the old... (laughs) And he did. Now, what about the French séjour, shall we say, with Ligier? I had two, you see. I went to Ligier to work for Ligier and then
1: I went to Benetton and during my Benetton contract, Flav was going to buy Ligier. And Flav basically said, could you go and sort Ligier out for me? And I was seconded to Ligier. I was still being paid as chief engineer of Benetton, as well as being paid as technical director of Ligier. So it was quite good. But by then, Guy had gone. So, yeah, the second... But that sort of went wrong a bit, because my contract with Benetton was coming to an end. I went to have a chat with Flav about what the future held, and he said, well, I'm going to sell it to Tom. So I went to talk to Tom... And Tom did a deal with me personally, with TWR, not with Ligier. So I had a contract then with Tom, with his holding company. And he came and said, well, I'm not going to buy Ligier, I'm going to buy Arrows. And it was, that was a bit of a kick in the teeth, to be honest, because I had hired the people I wanted to build up my team at Ligier and they got contracts. So I was a bit fed up because my contract wasn't with Ligier, it was with Tom. They were very pissed off with me because all of a sudden I'd offered them a job and then wasn't working there anymore. Did you enjoy the Ligier yeah. experience yeah. when you were there? I loved living in, in France. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love living in France. It's nice. And where and were you? I, I, I was in just near Manicourt. Um The thing is, The one thing that I did that I think fitted in quite well was I was very aware of the fact that a lot of the English people assume that shouting English loud is the right way to speak to a foreigner. And I thought to myself, well, I'm the foreigner now. And because Jacques Lafitte, when he was at Williams, he doesn't speak very good English, but he spoke to us in English. And I thought, well, I don't speak very good French, but I'm in a French team. The mechanics generally don't speak English, I'm going to speak French. And the other thing that was that with Jacques, if he didn't speak it perfectly, nobody cared. So eventually I got to the stage where, you know, I could have a chat in the pub with mechanics, speak in the Argo, understand. And the the highlight of my French, I think, I was on my way to one of the races and I got the train up to Paris and I got a taxi from Gare du Nord to the airport and I was chatting to the taxi driver,
0: and after a while he said, I can't place your accent, are you Swiss? And I thought,
1: yes, it's not perfect, but at least he knows I'm not English. <laughs>
0: how different How different was it being at Ligier when you're effectively working for the national team? Did you feel a pressure and the headlines in Lake did they matter? No, um, not to me.
1: To, I mean, to, to be team. honest, I mean, yeah, to the team. Uh, I remember, I obviously uh, got to know Johnny Reeve because... He was the Le Keep guy and he came and uh, he was complaining about something one day and I sort of, with a twinkle in my eye, said, I don't know why you're complaining, you run Ligier. What do you mean? I said, well, you write something in Le Keep one day and we're doing it the next day because guy, guy reads Le Keep every day and whatever you say we should be doing, we're doing the next day. Uh. <laughs> and that was a problem. And I, I remember Ross telling me once at Ferrari, one of the ways in which they made Ferrari successful was that jean todd kept the italian press at arm's length because one of the big problems at ferrari is the power of the italian press to throw a googly and have the senior management or the sponsors or somebody wanting them to do something that's wrong and that was the problem at least you you know you get we were doing a semi-automatic gearbox and it We'd just done, I think, two race distances with it, with success, and it was good. And Guy invited me out for lunch, because we had all our meetings at La Renaissance over lunch. And he grabbed hold of me. Franck, j'ai peur. He just didn't want to do it, because he was frightened it wouldn't work out. If you
0: could use one adjective to sum up Guy Ligier. I think Patriot is probably... Is that an adjective? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's um,
1: an enthusiastic, passionate... I love. Did him. he get it? Honestly, did he understand? Yeah, Formula he one? did better yeah. than most people. Actually, he just he was the one who had the pressure because he knew that all the members of the government that were authorising the budget were going to be reading Le Keep and didn't know anything about motor racing. So he was the one who had to swim the difficult channel because Guy, he was great. Actually, you know, I remember he didn't often say much in the meetings, but when he said something. He absolutely hit the nail on the head every time, and he reminded me of my dad. My dad was quite a gruff, strong character, and Guy was very like—I mean, not as he was much younger, but in fact—but he he reminded me so much of my dad. I loved him to bits. Actually, he was he was a great
0: boss, and it's a shame it didn't work out for him. Well, look, another team that didn't have five years—they had eight years—in Formula One was Toyota gosh, I remember the launch. We all flew down to Paul Ricard. Bernie was there. Max Mosley was there as the arrival of this great Toyota Formula One team. I think you were at Williams, back at Williams at the time, but you did go to Toyota for the last two or three years, having done that stint in IndyCar with Lola. Um, What drew you back, A, to Formula One and B, to Toyota? Well, I came back to Williams, in fact,
1: that's why Patrick just rang me up one time and said, it's ridiculous, you're one of the most experienced blokes. We're having all sorts of problems with our car at the moment. You need to come here and sort a few things out. So I went to Williams and then I got made redundant later. Over, I won't go into the details of that, but I was... So that was my second stint at Williams. And after that, I had worked quite closely with Pascal Vassalon on making the Williams... Because the Williams' basic problem was set up had a setup on the car that didn't keep the tyres at the right temperature and didn't run the car at the right ride height for the aero and by basically just changing the way the car was set up we made it go from being quick in qualifying wrecking its tyres in 10 laps to winning Monaco and that was all set up because the car was perfectly good enough and a lot of the work I did on getting that sorted I did with Pascal who was chief michelin. engineer of michelin of course he was so yeah. when there was going to be the new nine 2009 rules which was very much an aero big aero change and he and i knew each other and got on he thought maybe i'd be able to help with giving them advice in which direction to go on the aerodynamics so i did some made some suggestions and made some changes as a result of yano contacted the senior management in japan Insisting that I went to all the races. So there I was, supposed to be working three days a week doing some aero long term research for 2009. Found myself at every Grand
0: Prix. So it's quite good and entertaining fun working on that. And the 2009 Toyota was a very good racing car. Start of the season it was. It didn't win a race. No. And nor did Toyota ever win a race. No, it's a shame. Why didn't it work for them? Um, I'm going to be unkind
1: now, but the problem with Toyota was that the 2009 car was pretty good. It went through a phase of developing wrongly because they wanted, I won't go into the detail, but they made some changes to the way the wind tunnel was. bits came out, which resulted in going from being pretty well the fastest car in Melbourne, coming on the podium from pit lane, to being the slowest at Monaco. I think the problem was that Toyota got such a bad reputation in the press that they were never seen by the outside world as as good as they actually were, as a result of which they didn't get the best driver. I'm pretty sure that if we had done as well in 2009 as we perhaps could have done and Alonso had joined, he would have been world champion. Because Pascal... With Toyota. Yeah, I think... Alonso thought sufficiently highly of Pascal Vassanon from
0: his Michelin days that he maybe could have been persuaded. So it wasn't their modus operandi that was wrong. It was the fact they they had the wrong people in the cockpit. Is that what you're saying? Well, eventually.
1: Yeah, I think when I went there, I would say the modus operandi was wrong. They had some very good engineers and they were doing some, for example, if a stiff car was the thing to have. The Toyota would have run all the races because I have never gone anywhere where the work on the structure and the success of the work on the structure was at the level of Toyota. It was by miles the stiffest car I've ever had anything to do with. But it actually isn't the most important thing. So one of the parameters that they were exceptionally good at and targeted being good at was to make the car better in a way that wasn't going to make it faster. And once they'd accepted that, we were away i mean the if you look at the progression during 2008 the car got better and better and better and at the beginning of 2009 the car was good so they they have the capability of doing a very good job what they didn't have when i joined i would say they hadn't targeted the most important
0: things to get good well frank thank you very much for your time it's been wonderful to chat yeah nice to see you would you like some more tea i'd love (laughs) some That Toyota story sums up what Frank was all about in Formula One. He knew the areas on which a team needed to focus, and that's why he enjoyed so much success over his 40-odd years in the sport. But what a wealth of knowledge and anecdotes. He painted such a good picture of Williams, and who knew that he was the first person to test the team's active suspension system at Abingdon Airfield in the UK, slicks in the wet and all. Frank, many thanks for your time and thank you for sharing so many stories with us. As ever, please remember to send in any thoughts or stories that you have on Frank. Have you ever worked with him? Which of his cars did you like the most? Send in your messages and I'll read out some of them on next week's show. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Bobby Rahal after last week. What a racing icon that man is. Let's start with this from Jack Byrne. Great chat with Bobby Rahal, he says. I remember Channel 9's coverage of the 2001 Belgian Grand Prix in which Dazzy Slake said to Alan Jones that Nicky Lauder was coming into Jaguar and AJ's immediate response was just, oh geez, that's not going to end well for Bobby Rahal. A proper nod to the man Rahal is. Thanks for that memory, Jack. Bobby was really fascinating about the whole Jaguar racing chapter in the show, wasn't he? And he could see the writing on the wall as soon as Nicky arrived, couldn't he? Next, uh, let's hear from Ryan Janaka. Loved your chat with Rahal, he says. One of the most intelligent and eloquent races from Formula One to Can-Am to IndyCar and IMSA. The man's done it all. He was my childhood racing idol, and I've had the privilege to meet and interview him multiple times since. Thank you for this episode. My pleasure, Ryan. And you're right, Bobby is such a good advert for our sports. Finally, let's go to Twonga Matika Music. Uh, This conversation was very insightful. Just listening to Bobby share his memories of Formula One, as well as his affinity for Jim Clark and his experience in motorsport. Well, thanks Twonga for the message. And I, like you, loved hearing what Bobby had to say about Jimmy Clark, who was clearly such a central pillar for all aspiring racing drivers in the 1960s. We all have our heroes and Jimmy was a good one for Bobby to have. Well, that's it for this show. And please remember to send in your stories about Frank Durney. We'll be back next week with another fantastic conversation from the world of Formula One. Now make sure you follow F1 Beyond the Grid on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, why not check out our latest episode of F1 Nation, where Natalie Pinkham, Damon Hill and I are reunited as we look ahead to this weekend's Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.